Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode uh, with Mr. Revolta here to talk about the uh, kind of American Revolutionary period and some of the kind of key concepts, key uh, events that go down right in the struggle between the American colonists and the mother country, right, England and the fight for independence. Hey guys, so hopefully uh, planning to stick around 10 minutes, it might go a little bit longer, there's a lot of content, but I hope uh, you enjoy, hope it helps you a little bit, and welcome aboard. All right guys, so uh, the uh, first important term to kind of discuss is a person. That person is John Locke. So John Locke is a um, English philosopher, kind of political philosopher, who uh, kind of wrote multiple essays, multiple works, and was very much shaped by the kind of uh, controversies or the events surrounding the English Civil War and sort of questions of, uh, you know, right to rule and so forth. And he's also a product of the Enlightenment, just like a lot of the founding fathers. And uh, the key thing with Locke and why we look at him, why he's so significant in the United States history is he was probably the most uh, biggest inspiration when it came to the founding fathers and their views of government, right? Like that uh, people choose their ruler, people have the right to depose an unjust ruler or someone that is abusing their power. So Locke's uh, work, whether it be the treaties of government or others, really key to shaping the view the founding fathers had of a legitimate government, sort of by the people, for the people. You know, in fact, later on, right in the Declaration of Independence and uh, those words are almost taken sometimes from Locke, almost word for word, just kind of slight changes. So again, Locke, a key inspiration for the Founding Fathers and the sort of a reasoning behind revolution and behind independence. Yeah, John Locke. All right, guys, another key figure on the opposite kind of end of the spectrum is King George III. And he is the uh, ruler of England during the time of the fight for independence. And uh, it's, it's kind of hard to, you know, the, the key with kind of King George III and takes a lot of blame for uh, the American colonies and, you know, winning the revolution and getting separate. But a lot of it has to do with the circumstances he inherited, right? The, all the expenses from the French and Indian War or the Seven Years' War. In addition, you know, what, what is true about King George III is perhaps some things could have been better done as far as uh, working with, uh, you know, Parliament and trying to find some sort of middle ground between the colonies and Parliament. And, you know, at times he could be kind of forceful. He was also really bad at dealing with sort of like stability within his government, he was always kind of uh, reappointing and shuffling around his cabinet, his advisors, and things like that. So again, King George III, again, King of England during the Revolution. And so it's under his watch, right, that the American colonies get their independence. All right, guys, the next kind of terms move on to sort of the events as kind of the lead up to revolution. Uh, so we have the Stamp Act. Now, there are a bunch of others, but I'm going to focus on the Stamp Act. It's kind of a major one. But you have the Sugar Acts, Currency Acts, Townshend Acts. Kind of list goes on and on. Uh, but the Stamp Act of 1765 or so is really important because, um, as I'll illustrate later on in the lectures in, in the course or in the class, uh, it's one of the earliest times or kind of the first time that we've had a sort of what's called a direct tax, right? So a direct tax, if we're comparing it to something today, is something that you pay basically like on the spot, right? Um, you know, uh, you pay sales tax, right? When you go buy a bag of chips or a soda or something like that, kind of something like that. And so the Stamp Act was basically to raise revenue, right, to... Uh, Parliament would say well, the justification is to kind of defend the colonies and pay for the ma maintenance of that defense. And the idea was basically anything printed, whether it be a newspaper, playing cards, another famous one, official documents, uh, all those things uh, had to have a stamp and you had to pay a, you know, a small tax on that document. Well, the, uh, you know, this is kind of the first time England's ever tried anything like this. You know, up to this point with the Sugar Act or other things, it's been all kind of indirect, meaning that you know, the only ones affected by it are the big merchants, the big people involved in trade with the Caribbean and with the mother country and stuff like that. But you know, when you're talking about playing cards, official documents, newspapers, 
know, it's the common people that uh, interact with those things almost on a daily basis and them that's going to be paying the tax. So, you know, it, there's a, you can, really can't say enough to how the reaction of the passage to the Stamp Act creates this kind of, you know, unruliness on the part of the colonies and kind of begins the movement of resistance and really kind of unifying the colonies against the mother country. So in the end, it will be repealed, right? Uh, it is kind of done away with, but just kind of that threat of it and that presence of it was enough to get on the Americans' uh, bad side and cause them to kind of be more organized and to, you know, mount a resistance to uh, some of England's policies. Again, that is a stamp back, 1765. All right, guys, we'll jump into 1770 with the Boston Massacre. <laughs> so um, in 1770, you know, from the... Make sure I have the, yeah, the date's correct. Yeah, 1770. So the Boston Massacre takes place at just outside the Customs House in Boston, Massachusetts. And basically what we had there is the, you know, years and years of building up kind of resentment against some of the policies of England, right? Becoming more and more strict with their customs agents, with uh, how they were kind of enforcing the rules and, and, you know, against smuggling and things like that. And, uh, you know, what we have is basically a crowd that formed outside the Customs House and was kind of badgering and yelling at and throw, something later on throwing things at some of the sentries, like the guards that were posted there at the Customs House. So again, we have multiple accounts of what happened, right? But you know, we do know the crowd was kind of uh, being a bit aggressive, all that, eventually throwing things, snowballs, other things that were available to them. And then eventually that uh, soldier who was being kind of harassed called for backup, and the backup showed up. And then as things got more and more aggressive, the uh, soldiers ended up shooting on the American colonists, uh, killing five. Most famous probably being that Crispus Attucks, right? The African-American, also like a ringleader of the little resistance there. But, uh, you know, the outcry from this is going to be loud and clear of, wow, we've had this incident, right, involving British troops in Boston and this, uh, you know, exchange and this gunfire and what's going to happen. Well, the event itself is pretty intense. I mean, the troops are tried for murder. Um, they're defended by none other than John Adams, right, future president, the second president of the United States. And he mounts a successful defense of them. And so they're acquitted. And then England rapidly moves those troops right back home to England. But it's, again, a, a sign of how things are going that, you know, violence is a very kind of real um, situation. And the situation is pretty volatile over here uh, in the colonies. You know, if anything, the way the timeline kind of plays out, it is funny that you know, that happens in 1770. And then kind of the next big event, the one that actually is really going to kick things off, you know, does not happen until three years later. And that is the Boston Tea Party. So from 1770 to 1773, we have kind of a, a kind of relaxed period, and it looks like things might be improving. But the Americans do not forget, you know, they're still boycotting British goods. They're still corresponding. They're still um, organizing the resistance of British goods and of opposition to these taxes and different things. So, you know, the even though this time period is kind of relaxed or more chill, the Americans, again, are still ready and organized to display their uh, unhappiness with the mother country. All right, guys, so with the Boston Tea Party of uh, around Christmas time of 1773, we have the effect of the, what's known as the Tea Act, right? But in a nutshell, what had happened is a pretty big Boston company called the uh, East India Company um, was uh, struggling and basically going bankrupt. So what they dealt in was with tea, mainly from India. And uh, what the act did, and people always forget this, is it actually made tea cheaper for the American colonists. But the colonists, for the colonists, it was more a matter of principle. It's not that, you know, they wanted, they didn't want cheap tea. I'm sure they were happy with that. It's the fact that, you know, what England was doing was basically organizing a monopoly and forcing the tea upon the colonies themselves. 
So, you know, the colonies and, you know, groups like the Sons of Liberty organize and are mounting resistance. And what people tend to forget is that he has actually sat there for quite some time in Boston Harbor. But, of course, you know the rest, right, with uh, members of the Sons of Liberty dressing like Mohawk Native Americans and then dumping those 342 chests of tea into Boston Harbor. People also forget that in the following months after that, um, incidents, similar incidents arose in New York, parts of the South, Charlestown, uh, and then even, I think, parts of Virginia as well. So the key thing here is what the reaction on England's part is. Once this happened, uh, England is, is kind of done. They're, they're done sort of tolerating this, what they view as like insubordination, right? Like kind of the spoiled Americans, um, you know, angry and uh, pouting all the time when they don't get their way. So this is what ushers in, ushers in what we call the Coercive Acts in early 1774. You might have uh, remembered them from eighth grade. They're called the uh, Intolerable Acts sometimes. But, uh, you know, what, what, what follows is the beginning of, you know, what's going to cause war, right? And that is, you know, Massachusetts, in particular, Boston Harbor is going to be closed. So the port of Boston is closed, only open to the English military and the English Navy. So it basically, you know, shuts down kind of the economy, a key part of the economy for uh, Massachusetts and for New England in general. It also dissolves the government of uh, Massachusetts. And instead, a, a British general named General Gage will be kind of the leader of that sort of military government now. And uh, other measures involving like the quartering of troops, not only in Massachusetts, but anywhere in the colonies, if British troops needed a place uh, to stay, they could basically kind of occupy American, the colonist property and stuff. And the key thing here is what maybe the British were expecting. You know, the British were probably expecting um, the other colonies to kind of be fearful. I mean, and they were, but it was also a, uh, a deal where they felt very bad for Massachusetts and for what's going on in New England. So, you know, the, the colonists aren't one to kind of stand by. So they actually end up kind of supporting and allowing, uh, you know, giving their support to, to the region, right, to New England, to Massachusetts. And that's maybe something where the Crown and the uh, Parliament kind of messed up a little bit. Is they thought by doing this, they'd be isolating the problem, then getting rid of it. And no, it, it actually made things worse. And it also caused maybe even a rapid, uh, more unification on the part of the colonists too. So what follows, right, is the meeting of the Continental Congress and uh, mid-1774. Uh, so here we have what's the beginning of going to be, you know, the formal government basically during the revolution with most of the colonies being represented. Now, again, initially there's no movement towards independence, not yet anyway, but and they do want to meet to kind of organize, to voice their concerns to the king and to parliament. You know, this, this cannot continue. This can't, we cannot live this way. And of course, in the between, in between, there's two continental congresses, one in 1774 and the other uh, later on is the breakout of war. And that's the key thing with the American Revolution is, you know, it starts out kind of regional. And, you know, that's why you have, you have sort of the Minutemen, right, and the kind of patriots of Massachusetts and the New England area. They're the first to kind of do the fighting. And then what happens after that is a series of events where, you know, you have a makeshift government, you have George Washington that's going to be appointed, right, all that. So this all stuff is very, very fluid. Uh, good. So Continental Congress, you know, the kind of shell of the government that would be sort of the government in transition for the American colonies. Uh, Lexington and Concord, of course, the shot heard around the world, right, where the fight breaks out and violence between the British troops and the uh, sort of militiamen of New England. Again, basically the British were there looking for arms and weapons that were, they'd gotten a tip that was stored. And then a uh, colonial militia forms to kind of defend uh, that position. And, uh, you know, they're ordered to disperse, they refuse. And then eventually it appears the Americans probably shot first. That's still debated. But then the Redcoats return fire. And, you know, basically that's the beginning of the war. That's the beginning of the American Revolution. 
Uh, later on during the war, 1776, a key year, right, not only because of the De- Declaration of Independence, but early 1776, the publication of Common Sense, which in a lot of ways is kind of like the first massive bestseller in U.S. kind of printing history. So I think something within the first three months, like close to 100,000 copies are sold. And it's written by an Englishman, a gentleman named Thomas Paine, who, uh, again, is a transplant and he lives in America. But, uh, you know, the key thing here and why Common Sense is so important is... It really gave kind of like a reasoning and put into words, you know, why uh, the colonies needed to be separate from the mother country. And, you know, it was very popular. Again, th- that amount of copies during that time, and a lot of people see it as key is to kind of convince the everyman and everybody of the need for independence, the need to separate from the mother country. So, again, that was Common Sense by Thomas Paine. All right, guys, a couple more. Uh, we have the Articles of Confederation. So, basically, you have kind of like a if we had a graphic organizer, kind of like a flow chart, right? The Continental Congress, what begins as a Continental Congress, First and Second Continental Congress, eventually emerges into a what we call the Articles of Confederation Government, which is the revolutionary government uh, during the war, right? So this is, their main goal basically was to uh, keep the army, right, the uh, uh, Continental Army kind of active, right, appoint a leader, which they would, of course, in George Washington, and to keep a functional government during this wartime period. And sometimes they're really dark, right? There's times where the Redcoats, the English almost catch them, uh, but uh, they'll do their job. I mean, they, you know, the supplies at times will be low, but they'll do their best to print money, to you know, provide the resources necessary to, to try to win this war. And lastly, we have a group called the Loyalists. And so you know, we usually divide the population into uh, kind of like three sections. Right? You had people that were neutral, you know, involved in their own daily lives, all that, right? Really didn't necessarily care uh, who won the war. You had a group like the Patriots, which are, of course, the men fighting. Uh, most of the, of course, the founding fathers, right? Uh, troops, all that stuff. And then you had uh, the Loyalists, who were, again, Americans that were still loyal to the King of England and loyal to Parliament. And they were a pretty substantial group. And, you know, one thing that the Americans are kind of good at, uh, even in the lead up to the war, is the sense of kind of like community and all that. In that, uh, you know, if you supported the king, the king's troops, a lot of times you were tended to be targeted by these patriot groups, groups like the Sons of Liberty. And sometimes, you know, your property was at risk and you maybe you could even be at risk of harm. So this is why, you know, when we have the end of the war, um, there's going to be some kind of ramifications of this. And the, uh, you know, a good amount of people, I think the number is uh, pretty, pretty significant, like a few tens of thousands are going to leave uh, the United States or leave America after the war because they don't feel necessarily safe here. So it's important to kind of acknowledge that. We tend to think that everybody was for the war. It's much more complicated than that. And a good amount of people were happy being under, uh, you know, being under um, England's uh, empire and so forth. All right, guys, a uh, couple other things, just the two key battles we will focus on. There'll be a couple others, but uh, the Battle of Saratoga, very, very important, kind of known as the turning point of the revolution. And funny thing is, uh, Washington himself is not necessarily involved in that war. Instead, the two leaders are a guy named Horatio Gates and uh, later on, the guy would be known as a traitor, a guy named Benedict Arnold. But there was a massive force kind of coming down from Canada, trying to rendezvous with another British force kind of in the uh, New York area, uh, the area around New York City. And uh, the Americans do a great job of kind of ambushing and slowly kind of chipping away at this larger force. And so it's kind of a, a key kind of early victory. And the reason it's known as a turning point is uh, the French had been helping us kind of uh, under the table, right, more covertly in the early part of the war. After Saratoga, the French are going to kind of be at our disposal and help us out with their navy especially, and even ground troops later on. So again, that is Battle of Saratoga. And of course, the decisive battle is the Battle of Yorktown. You know, we'll get into much more detail in, in class. 
But uh, that is the one that affirms, right? George Washington is there to accept the surrender of uh, Lord Cornwallis, who was a British uh, military leader uh, in that region, in Yorktown, Virginia. And that's the one that ends hostilities, right? So after this begins the process of uh, you know, sort of suing for negotiations and suing for independence. So again, Battle of Yorktown, the decisive battle, right? The one that affirms an American victory. So again, a pretty amazing tale, right? A tale of an underdog. And uh, again, sorry, I went a lot longer than I initially thought. But hope you learned a little bit of something and hope it helps you with your assignments and stuff. Have a great day. See you later.